0: coming up on this episode of Leap Takers.
1: So one area I worked on is how do we have self-control and what situations do we make a patient choice compared to what situations do we make an impulsive choice? And just to give you an example with food choices, you know, when do we decide to eat a candy bar versus when do we decide to take the salad? Um, We can predict to some extent when people are going to make a decision that's good for their long-term interests versus short-term interests by looking at the brain and then we try to stimulate those areas to see if we can kind of push the decisions in a more beneficial direction. And so that was, of course, very relevant to what I'm doing now at the startup to just better try to understand how to help people make decisions that are in their best interest. <laughs>
0: Hello, everyone. It has been a while since the last episode, and I will tell you in a second why. But most importantly, I'm very excited to finally bring you a new episode today of the Takers podcast. As usual, I'm interviewing up and coming European entrepreneurs, investors, and shapers from various fields to retrace their journey of how they got started with their own project, their own company, and to discover the insights, tips, tricks, and advice they gathered so that you too can hopefully take the leap one day. So before I get to announcing my guest, though, just a quick personal update. I recently decided to take a break from my job in venture investing and to instead take off a few months to travel and maybe also to start thinking and working on some business ideas, startup ideas I have. So I'm actually about to leave Switzerland uh, in a few days and I'll fly to Latin America. So you might wonder, what does that mean for the podcast? Well, most importantly, yes, I will still continue the podcast and I will keep on trying to bring on interesting guests to this show. However, the episodes might not be released as regularly anymore for the next few months as in the past. I mean, even this episode has been delayed for quite a bit, so it all depends on the guests I will be able to find and how easy it will be to record the podcasts while I'm backpacking through Latin and South America. Still, I'd be very happy to hear from you if you have any guest recommendations or people you would like me to interview. So just shoot me a message over the contact form at leaptakers.com if you have any ideas. So now to today's episode. My guest is Anjali Rasha Birel. Anjali is the CSO, the Chief Science Officer, and one of the founders of Colabri.com. Colabri is a Swiss e-health and digital adherence startup focused on helping patients to make lasting behavioral changes and to stick to their therapy regimen. This is being achieved with the Colabri app, which leverages insights from behavioral economics and neuroscience into supporting people to form healthy habits. So this all sounds very complicated, but we will make it a lot clearer in this episode what this all means. So I really enjoyed this episode and I believe this episode is specifically interesting to everyone that is interested about scientific research and that wants to learn more about the science behind behavioral change and how you can form healthy habits, as well as people that are thinking of entering the startup world from the world of academia. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Anjali. Hi, Anjali. Welcome to the Leaftakers podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. And it's so great Hello. to have you.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast and giving me the opportunity to talk about Colibri.
0: Yeah, I'm very happy that you're here. And as always with my guests in the podcast, let's just start with a quick introduction of yourself. So how would you introduce yourself to someone you just met like at the networking event or dinner?
1: Okay. Well, uh, my name is Anjali Rajabharal, and I'm originally a neuroscientist. I got my PhD at the University of Toronto. And as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm originally from the US, from Chicago. I co-founded a company called Colabri uh, a year ago, and I am very excited to apply what I know about neuroscience to the company to help patients improve their medication adherence.
0: Yeah, we will definitely talk about the whole topic that you're trying to tackle with Colibri later in this podcast before we get there. So like, I'm curious about your personal background and how you got interested in entrepreneurship. How did you get interested in in the world of startups? And why did you decide then to to join a startup or to co-found a startup?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think it was people telling me, you know, what I could potentially do outside of science and entrepreneurship just came up a lot. And I think there's a lot of similarities between how you work in a startup and how you work in research. You know, one thing in research is, You have to be comfortable with taking bigger risks. A lot of times your experiment doesn't work out. And when I was telling people about what I was doing in the lab and saying I was looking for something else, potentially outside of science, I would say three or four people said, why don't you look into startups? And then the other thing was that I was just really excited about taking what we did in the lab and trying to actually apply that in the real world. And so when I got in touch with the other co-founders of Colabri, it just seemed like a number of things were coming together. That were helpful for me in taking that next step, but yeah, I would say it w- it's just basically this idea: of wanting to take risks and wanting to um, build something new that you have to have in science and also as an entrepreneur.
0: So you were in academic research before. Could you give yes. us a brief overview about what you did exactly and what you like, what you focused on, where where you did your PhD, uh, etc.?
1: Yeah, sure. So. Well, I started off being interested in neuroscience because of the fact that every aspect of human being existence seems to have a biological correlate in the brain. And so Uh, I don't know if some of your audience has read the neurologist Oliver Sacks, but I just found that really fascinating, some of his books. And that's kind of what led me to want to be a neuroscientist and to find out how can we better understand how we think, how we perceive the world, and potentially also how we recover from damage. When we lose some of these functions, how do we rehabilitate? How does the brain compensate for losing the functions that are coded in different parts of it. So for my PhD, it was more clinical, and I looked at children that had had a stroke in utero. And so what was really fascinating there is that compared to an adult who has a similar injury, children who have a stroke in utero recover language almost as well as their normal peers. So I wanted to see what happens when you take out this area with a stroke. How is the brain uh, able to compensate for it with plasticity? And what that taught me was just a lot about the fundamentals of neuroscience and anatomy and how the brain and neural networks reconfigure. So that's what I worked on in my PhD. When I came to Zurich, then I transitioned more into decision making or a field, what's called neuroeconomics. So this looks at what happens in the brain when we make various decisions so uh, rather than just waiting for perhaps a brain injury or a lesion to happen so we can understand it, in the lab I was in in Zurich, we were actively manipulating brain networks to see how it changes behavior for making different types of behavioral decisions, such as decisions involving self-control or taking risk. And what we would do is we would stimulate those areas with magnetic stimulation or electric stimulation, or also with neurofeedback to see how does the brain respond and how can we actually change behavior? And what was really interesting there also is I learned how um, to make very precise models of decision-making. So one area I worked on is how do we have self-control and what situations do we make a patient choice compared to what situations do we make an impulsive choice? And just to give you an example with food choices, you know, when do we decide to eat a candy bar versus when do we decide to take the salad? Um, we can predict to some extent when people are gonna make a decision that's good for their long-term interests versus short-term interests by looking at the brain. And then we try to stimulate those areas to see if we can kind of push the decisions in a more beneficial direction. And so that was, of course, very relevant to what I'm doing now at the startup to just better try to understand how to help people make decisions that are in their best interest.
0: Sounds super yeah. exciting. And yeah. like, I'm <laughs> sure a lot of people would like to get some support to, I guess, in the example you mentioned to eat healthier and not choose the candy bar, <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> but opt for the more
0: healthy option. But I'm also curious. So you were in this whole academic field. And how did it come that you found the startup or that you co-founded the startup? Like, did you reach out to the other founders or you all came together and thought, this is a cool idea. We should start a company in that area. Or how did this origin story happen? Of, of Yeah, Coldplay?
1: it wasn't, it wasn't quite like that. It was really through a connection, like so many things in the career world. So they reached out to, or they had a, a advertisement for a co-founder and my colleague actually found this who is working on very similar research questions as I was. And one thing was that they needed someone who could speak German fluently. And this is very helpful because I uh, grew up with a German-speaking mother. And another thing was that my area of research was looking at this sort of trade-off between and decisions that are in your short-term best interest versus long-term best interest. So I think the fit was a little bit better. At the same time, before I met the co-founders, I always had this kicking around in the back of my head about taking what we're doing in the lab and actually trying to apply it in the real world. So all of these exciting results I was describing to you about being able to stimulate people's brains and changing their behavior, they often just hold in the lab. And it's really rare that someone takes them and then tries to apply them in a real world setting. I think what tends to happen is that people write a paper, they publish it, and it always just seemed to stay in the ideal realm which is great. You know, you feel like you have a really good understanding of what's happening, but it seemed like it was always really separate from the real world. And I was just excited by this idea of seeing, well, can we do it and make it ecologically valid and actually take these ideas and really test them and see if we can help people. So it was very exciting for me when my colleague introduced me to the other Colibri members. And I felt like it was just a good synergy in the beginning.
0: Maybe this is a good time to tell the audience a bit more about actually what colabri is and what the goal is of the startup, like what's the product you're working towards or what's the solution you're working towards, and what is the issue you're really trying to solve with yeah. with colabri.
1: Yeah, definitely. So colabri, if some of you will maybe visit our website later, is inspired by the German word for hummingbird, the Colibri, which is just a very hardworking, very active bird. I think people just associate it with a lot of positive emotions. So we thought it was a great logo for our company, but it also is a combination of that and the word collaboration. And so we were just very taken with wanting to help patients with chronic diseases, given the fact that this is such an increasing problem, not only in Switzerland, but worldwide, and that requires the integration, not only of the patient, but several people that have to collaborate with the patient to manage their disease, such as their family, their friends, their healthcare givers, insurance companies, et cetera. So that's kind of where the idea initially came from. Then through questions with different physicians and stakeholders, we realized a huge problem is medication adherence. So patients who have chronic conditions, about 50% of them don't actually take their medications the way that they're prescribed. Some of them don't even fill their prescriptions at all. And some of them take them, but then occasionally take drug holidays or take some time off. And this, of course, as you can imagine, leads to a lot of avoidable healthcare costs. Patients wind up having to go to the ER, having to have repeat hospital visits, decrease in productivity and an estimated 125 billion euros are lost every year because of this um, problem of medication adherence. And even people prematurely lose their lives and an estimated 200,000 lives are lost per year. This is in Europe alone. So it's a huge problem and it's a little bit mind boggling because you wonder, you know, when it's in your best interest to take these medications, why do so many patients not do this? You know, even patients who've, for example, had a heart attack a year later, 50% don't follow their medication plan, even though this means they're very likely to suffer a heart attack again. So, most solutions that look at this assume that there must be some rational reasons for this, that people behave rationally. If they were, patients were only given more information, if they were told more about their illness, then they would follow their medication plan. And so the different approach from Colabrie is that we understand that we actually are not rational. This is a fundamental insight from behavioral economics. We don't always make decisions that are in our best interest in the long term we're affected by different kinds of cognitive biases. For example, present bias. This is what I was looking at with the candy bar. You know, we often tend to pick something that's in our short-term best interest, even though, you know, the tomorrow you is going to regret maybe eating five candy bars Mm. or regret not going jogging. And we also have emotional, psychological drivers um, for why we behave a certain way. And often it's not under our conscious or volitional control. So, The whole idea of Colobrase is to take the best evidence we have from behavioral and neuroscience and integrate that into the app to try to address these biases and to help patients, one, develop habits, sustainable long-term habits, in order to take their medications on time. Patients are just currently being given their new prescription and just sent off without the tools that they need to sort of build this routine. And two, just the giving them rewards. That's our sort of main driver that we reward the patients in the short term to offset having to wait for this very long-term, potentially uncertain benefit of having better health.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So if I understand you right, you're like the end product you're working towards is an app that you would then give to the consumer or the person taking medication and that they have to use the app in combination with taking the medication. Is that the idea?
1: Yes, and it's a little bit more than that. It's not something we just hand out to the patients. Uh, We're working with insurance companies, like I said, this collaborative aspect. We're working with the healthcare providers. The idea is that it actually would be like a digital medicinal product that gets prescribed to the patient when they come in, when they receive their diagnosis for the chronic condition. Uh, they will receive this like they would all of their other prescriptions and it would be in close collaboration with their healthcare provider.
0: Okay. Okay. I think that makes a lot of sense to go through that channel of the healthcare provider instead of going directly B2C directly to consumer, because I think in that context, it's a lot more beneficial if you have that support from the insurance company or the healthcare provider
1: right and Um, the insurance companies would then reimburse just like they would with any other prescription given that they're the ones that are paying the brunt of the costs, although we are as a whole as a society mm -hmm. um, the insurance companies are maybe the most direct Mm -hmm. ones that are affected
0: yeah and how far along are you with the development process of the app or when do you expect that you will launch is there any timeline out there yet? or? Yeah, yeah,
1: there's definitely, there's a timeline. So currently we have a clinical trial that's underway with the University Hospital in Basel. This is to validate the app in patients that have high blood pressure. And so what we want to do is, because we're very interested in having scientific evidence for our intervention, uh, we want to prove the safety and the efficacy of the, the product. And so uh, we're expecting the first results to be in six months. We've already initiated discussions with the insurance companies, and we have particularly one that's interested in potentially reimbursing us if we can show this clinical evidence. Uh, So the timeline for that would be within the next six months to be able to give them these early results and then to start these negotiations. However, some of these mechanisms I was describing, like present bias, as we pointed out, are also related to other types of healthy behaviors, not just taking your medications like eating healthy, um, fitness. So we are planning to launch a non-prescription version of the app, which will be in uh, app stores the beginning of quarter four. So sometime in October, November, people can actually access that for their own goal setting and they will be able to either bet their own rewards or we will have rewards available for them. just depending. Okay, on
0: exciting, exciting. <laughs> Is, will, do you know already if the app will be in the Android store and the iOS store?
1: Yeah, definitely it's been developed for both. It's also for both in the clinical trial.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Everyone with a smartphone above a certain OS should be able to download it.
0: Okay, cool. Since we talked about the scientific research, I would like to dive a bit deeper into, you know, the the studies You are running or also behavioral economics, how behavioral economics can help. So you already described the problem, but we could dive a bit deeper in like your insights, why this happens and how you are now in practice trying to counteract that behavior that people are not acting in their best interest. And you could expand a bit on what you found out so far and on what the science says.
1: Definitely. So as I was saying before, our decisions are heavily influenced by these cognitive biases, particularly present bias. And of course, different people have different levels of how this influences them. But one thing is that we actually give them short term rewards, which is an insight from behavioral economics that we just give them some tangible rewards that they can have now they actually have in hand that will allow them to compensate for the fact that the long-term reward is so abstract. One thing that we do from behavioral economics is that we leverage some of these biases. For example, there's a principle called loss aversion. So basically when you have something and it's taken away from you, let's say I give you five francs and I take it away if you don't, I don't know, eat your broccoli. <laughs> That's going to hurt, hurt you twice as much as if I say, hey, Remo, I'm going to give you five francs if you eat your broccoli. So the way we do it with Colibri is that we give patients the reward upfront. They feel like it's theirs. They feel like they own it. We take advantage also of this endowment effect and then slowly we deduct the re- deduct the reward when they don't they don't take their medications or at least they don't ascertain that they take the res- medications so mm-hmm.
0: I'm sorry just, just one question is yes, this reward they're... always a monetary reward or can it also be something no,
1: else no no it can be something else so we also give other rewards this isn't based on loss aversion but we give them instant gratification and that can come in all forms and that's also something interesting from behavioral economics that In the brain, at least neurally, there's something called the common currency hypothesis that rewards are actually processed quite similarly, regardless of if they're food or if they're positive feedback or if it's financial, of course, this is um, up for debate. But our idea is to personalize them, so that once we have enough information about our participants in the study, we can see which reward is actually predicting that they will take their medication better. So we can give them an animation, we give them instant gratification, we give them gamification, so they can see their streaks. You know, how many days in a row did they have perfectly adherent days? Of course, the longer your streak, the less likely you are to break it. We're integrating family members, so potentially they'll get a video from their grandkid giving them a high five. You know, things that would make them just feel happy, make their day, just make them feel good. So it certainly doesn't have to be a financial reward. we just know from other studies that that is one effective way, particularly when it's coupled with loss aversion to motivate people to continue to stay with the medication taking behavior
0: sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. You were also saying, I think about, I'm, I'm not sure if you wanted to talk about the, the studies you're running or mm-hmm. if you could expand a bit more on, on the studies. Yeah. I think right. Yeah. So about. the
1: study, I cannot reveal results to you yeah, uh, because sure. it started in July, but we have three arms. And so, like I said, it's patients with hypertension. And what's great is we actually will get clinical evidence for this. So patients come in for five visits, Um, They have their blood pressure taken through the gold standard, which is 24-hour blood pressure monitoring. They also have a smart dispenser that they keep their medication in that records a timestamp of when they open it because, of course, it's a bit difficult to actually assess if the patients are taking it or if they're just uh, validating that in the app. And so we have one group, it's a control group, you know, you always want to just see if um, your app is better than doing nothing at all. So they get nothing with the app. And then we have two versions of the app, one with rewards and one with just reminders. So another thing about the app is that it helps you establish habits through reinforcing what's known as the habit loop. So you have a, a cue, you perform the action, and then you get a reward. All of that is integrated into the Colibri app. And we're just testing is, are the rewards going to work better, which we hypothesize they will compared to just getting a reminder every day, which Mm -hmm. might actually be annoying and which most of the solutions currently is all they're really doing.
0: Okay. And sure. I'm just wondering a bit in practice, like if you have this upfront reward, who would finance that in the end? Is it like the insurance company that puts up like a certain amount as like a reward if you use the yes. app and stick to the medication in, in the case of like medication adherence? Or yeah, yeah, how did uh, you plan that?
1: Yeah. It's the idea is that it would be a fee for each patient. So it would be a user fee for the service as well as the adherence based rewards. Of course, the less adherence they are, the less you have to pay them. But on average, if they are perfect, it would be 100 francs a month. But what's important is that this is a short-term intervention. So these financial incentives, they're just supposed to be a crutch. The idea that's really important with habit formation is you start off by doing it for a reward. So for example, when you were a kid and you were brushing your teeth, you might've just done it because your parents told you a great job afterwards. But eventually it should be a habit, it should be ingrained, and it should just be triggered by the cue, the reminder. And so our intervention is a 90-day intervention. It's three months of these 100-franc rewards. And after that, we will check the maintenance of the habit. And we actually follow up the patients six months later to see if uh, they're still following their habits based on just Mm -hmm. the cue. So it's not like you're going to be on the hook to be paying (laughs) these (laughs) rewards forever and ever and ever.
0: Okay, Okay. Um,
1: The the short-term invention. This is just for the medication adherence. Of course, then we have this other version, the non-prescription version where we're going to have lotteries, which also leverages behavioral economics. So people, I think, tend to overestimate the probability of winning lotteries. And the idea is that are you, depending on the number of days that you're adherent, you can wager a certain number of points in the lottery, and then you can get certificates either um, to your pharmacy to get the medications reimbursed or for other stores, depending on which providers that we have for that. And then finally, there is the wager your own money option, which is like a commitment device. So you have to put up the responsibility and accountability up front. You pay a certain amount of money, and then you get more back if you actually meet the goal
0: okay okay and this would be more applicable then to as you mentioned before areas like you want to maybe improve your diet or sports or other areas of your life that are not directly medically related but maybe just for your own well-being or your own health is yeah is there any specific areas you are focusing on or is this a more general all-purpose app?
1: It's mostly related to healthy habits. So we're not focusing on like career goals or things like that. So that would be exercise, nutrition, sleeping better. We are interfacing with devices that can help monitor certain performance. So for example, with the chronic conditions, again, we are interfacing with uh, blood pressure monitors that can give you feedback. So potentially we have the option to interface with wearables as well. So it is general in terms of healthy
0: habits? So yeah, this app really reminds me also of like other, you know, habit forming apps, but it sounds like Colibri is going a step further because you have these rewards or these, let's say, behavioral economic triggers or, or insights applied because my, at least my own experience is that I do these habit apps and then I, at one point I just stop using them because yeah. I don't really <laughs> see the point why I should keep using it or I forget, etc. But if you can hack kind of the brain as well, to work in your favor then that's really seems like a cool and very helpful yeah next step so I wanted to ask you a bit about this whole habit formation part as well and what the research says about that if you could expand on the insights that we got from research and science about habit formation
1: yeah definitely I think that's a really good point um, that you were saying is that there are a lot of habits out there but I think they don't Address all the components of this habit loop, even though there are definitely books and uh, like atomic habits and people out there talking about it. I think in the app, you, it's really great if you can just integrate everything that you need to form a sustainable habit. So that's what we're trying to do. So, just to give an overview, your audience isn't so familiar with uh, what the literature says. Habits are different from conscious behavior in that they're automatic. And as I said, you know, they're not usually done with a lot of awareness. This is really different from how we approach changing our habits. We approach changing our habits in that we say to ourselves, okay, well, we're just going to set a goal. And we assume that our willpower is going to carry us there. But in fact, it couldn't be more different from the truth because most of our behavior is actually done unconsciously and done automatically. So relying on willpower alone is um, not really helpful in terms of promoting a long-term habit. You know, if you have a short-term action that you want to perform, then willpower and conscious action is great. But what you need to actually do is set up your environment and set up a routine for yourself that allows you to perform your desired behavior as unconsciously and automatically as possible. So habits are basically how we get through our day. It's us running usually on autopilot, and it's not really that influenceable by conscious action. A second component about habits is that they're they're very sticky, is how we refer to it. So they're um, very, this is good, this is what we want. Like they're very resistant to changes in context. The deeper the habit is ingrained, and they're also last for very long term. So some classic examples for this, it's not the same as habit, but drug addictions, um, you know, you say an addict is never recovered. They're always an addict. And there's these famous cases like Philip Seymour Hoffman, who uh, relapsed into his addiction 30 years later, just because certain triggers can then promote you to do the same behavior. Or, you know, we all have the experience of just maybe going home from work and we want to run in an errands and then we stop paying attention and then we find that, oh, we already got home because we just executed the action on autopilot. So, habits are just deeply ingrained, they're sticky. One reason for this from neuroscience that's really interesting is just the way the brain processes during habit formation. So this is from animal research, but when animals carry out and learn a new behavior, the brain is active for the entire behavioral sequence. But when it becomes a habit, the brain actually is only active at the beginning and then at the end of the sequence. So it kind of chunks the entire action sequence into one behavior. And then it just runs from the beginning of the mark where the activity was to the end automatically. And so we see this when like rats learn to traverse a maze they have this type of chunking activity. And all of a sudden they no longer think about deciding where to go. They just run and they just go and they don't have to think about it. And it's the same thing with us. We just we don't interrupt that behavior. We just run that sequence. So one thing that's really interesting about it though is that we need this system. You know, it's not a bad thing like We have this trade-off between things that are very stable and things that are new that we need, you know, planning and creativity and attention for. And so the habit system just allows you to automatize all these actions so you can free up different resources in your brain. But the idea is then you have to be kind of smart and hack your brain in terms of figuring out how are you going to change your habits because Mm -hmm. you have to drop an old behavior while at the same time learning a new one. And that can be very challenging for Do you
0: people. always have to drop an old behavior? Is it a one-to-one replacement? Or... No,
1: no, you know, that's a good point. You don't always have to. Of course, like if you aren't running and, you know, you can also just learn a new behavior where you can try to do them simultaneously. I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a one-to-one replacement. Mm-hmm. It's just that if you're trying to break a bad habit and replace it with a good one, then you have these like simultaneously conflicting challenges. But okay. the good news is that what we understand about habits is that you have to have these three components that we have in the app, which is... You have to have this cue, which in our app is the reminder, then you have the action, and then you really need to have this reward because the reward is what you do the habit for initially. And as you transition from this goal-directed action to the habit, you have dopamine-related systems that link the fact that you perform this action with the reward. They slowly link it to just the cue. And then in the end, you just have the cue as like a trigger, and then you are able to perform the action Automatically. So if you Mm -hmm. figure out ways to make your good habits easily rewarded linked to a cue, make your bad habits as as difficult and as unrewarding as possible, and you do this with your environment rather than relying on your own willpower, then um, you can actually develop long term
0: habits. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you also mentioned before, like make it easy for you to set up these routines. And like, I I just remember, I think, I'm not sure if it was in in Atomic Habits or in another book that the author recommended to, if you want to start running, for example, you should already put out your jogging shoes, like right kind of when you get out of bed or something and you prepare your clothes so that it's like easier for you to just go out. Are there other like maybe tips you have for the audience if they want to... I mean, it, it, it can be in any area, like just if you have any other tips or insights from research, how to improve your habit formation.
1: So that's a, that's a great one. I was listening to a podcast by uh, Wendy Wood, who's a psychologist who works on habits and she even sleeps in her jogging clothes. So she takes it a step further. <laughs> and then she just talks about this whole, like preparing your environment, like a chef would prepare his Um, mise en place for cooking like if you can have everything set up then it's obviously much easier to just carry out and execute the habit. So some other things just on the reward side that are really interesting is that you always want to pair the behavior with a positive emotion. So let's say you are jogging, you can, maybe you have a, a show or a podcast that's like a guilty pleasure. You can combine that with jogging that you say, I'm an only, if it's on the treadmill the show, obviously not on the street, but I'm only going to watch this show or listen to this podcast or listen to this band or whatever it is, I'm going to reward myself immediately after or during the behavior. So what's really important is to pair it with a reward and the reward has to be immediate. And I think that's why often some of these apps are maybe not as helpful because you kind of make it a long-term reward nonetheless. And we just need to have these very short-term positive feedback cycles and you can get really creative with that. So it doesn't just have to be something like food or money. It can just be praise. It can just be telling yourself, like just reframing the situation. Like I am a amazing jogger, you know, giving yourself that identity, or I am very proud of myself for doing this, or look at all these positive aspects to eating this broccoli or salad, but it's just making that positive association is, is really helpful. And then another thing is unpredictable rewards are more helpful at building habits and, and predictable rewards based on time rather than an action. So it's not like if I do this habit, I will reward myself 80% of the time. What you would do instead is you would say if you if you can set this up, you have a random time each day that you set an alarm. And then if you've done the habit by that time, then you can have the reward. But if you if you haven't done it then then you don't. So um, playing a little bit with the unpredictability and the timing is something that when neuroscience has been shown to form very stable habits, because then you want to be there at a predictable time in order to receive your reward.
0: Okay. Okay. So it could mean that you get this alarm or notification, you know, it could be any anytime it's, it, let's say in later afternoon or evening. And until then you need to have done this activity. Is that yes. my correct understanding?
1: yeah exactly okay and so that's one of the nice things about Colibri is like it gives you these rewards also using some of this information so you don't have to set anything up for yourself it Mm -hmm. it kind of um, does all the planning for you in terms of the reminder and in terms of adding this unpredictable component for the rewards.
0: Okay, very interesting. I'm excited to see how like the final product or the first product that you will release will look like and how you combine yes. this <laughs> academic research with an, an actual product that people then can use with as an app. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I want to talk a bit more about as a as a startup. And first of all, could you share anything about your fundraising situation and like your future plans as, as Colibri like what next to releasing the app, what are your other plans?
1: Uh, yeah. So our fundraising is currently, we're looking to raise 1.8 million in this round and we have closed 400,000 committed. So we're definitely like in the middle of actively fundraising right now in Switzerland. In terms of our roadmap, the biggest things that we want to do is right now is be able to continue the clinical trial and have this evidence because then we want to enter like, like, like I said, into negotiations with insurance companies about a reimbursement model. However, we do have other exciting things going on on the side. One is, like I said, interfacing with devices such as blood pressure monitoring, but we also want to interface with potentially our own smart dispenser or other types of wearables that we can integrate so that people can actually see the positive effects of the behavioral change. And uh, the other thing is that we want to get certified as a medical device. Uh, because there is a new German law called Diga that is um, allows fast development of digital therapeutics that you don't necessarily need to have the clinical or efficacy established right away, but you have to do that as a medical device. So in order to give early access to our product to patients in Germany, we are on the way to get the certification. So those are some of our plans into the future. And then of course, the personalization, once we have data from the trial, I think what's very exciting to me is then to be able to figure out what motivates individual people, you know, what are the maybe the psychological characteristics that we have where we can say, well, one person has is motivated by the instant gratification. Others have financial rewards. Others are motivated by the, the feedback that they're getting, that they're getting healthier. And being really being able to tailor that for our customers is, is going to be really exciting.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Like another area I wanted to talk about is also your experience going into a startup, coming from an academic background, maybe for other people out there who are doing a PhD or kind of are focused on an academic path, but might think about joining a startup or going down that route in the future. So how was your experience like going from one way of working towards the more the startup way of working? Is there anything you can share about that and like learnings or like something you would tell yourself before you would do it again
1: yeah definitely I'm so happy you asked me that because I think it's it was like just a really exciting surprise for me and I love that your show is called leap takers because that's exactly how it felt leaving academia like I was just taking some plunge into the deep end and if there are any members in your audience still in research I just would strongly say it's just not as scary as you think. And I think if you're in academia, you have this idea that everything you're doing is only valuable in academia. And I did this program called Femino, and it's for women who want to take their research ideas and they want to transition it to an innovation. And we had so much training on how to um, really just build confidence, I would say was the most important thing, but also to apply our skills from a phd in the real world and it was just such a nice discovery for me to realize the things that they had been telling us actually seemed to be true that a lot of what we learn about how to think and creatively problem solve and visualize data quantitatively quantitatively analyze results synthesize literature is also applicable to what i'm doing right now in the startup And the mindset that you really have taking on this like big unknown project where you have like an idea of how the results are going to be, but it's really high risk, it could turn out completely differently. That's actually really helpful in an entrepreneurial world. And I had been told that in this program and other people said, you know, that the skills translate, but I just wish I had even considered it sooner because it's really exciting to know you can apply everything that you do in science to other problems and the skills are, are needed in lots of places so i would just say to the listeners that they should take confidence that they have learned a lot even if it doesn't seem like that based on your publication record <laughs> okay
0: thanks for sharing your insights about the making the move from like academia to the startup world but what do you would you think what would you think are the differences as well in, in your experience?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's obviously not exactly the same. So it is more unclear and like lots of different paths are possible, and it's more fast-paced, obviously. So in academia, you have your project and you tend to work with you know fairly narrowly within that goal. And one thing I had to get used to, but it's also very exciting is, you know, people will come along, they'll have a new idea, a potentially interested company approach us about, you know, adopting Colibri for their specific use case. Like I said, we're working with this blood pressure monitoring. So all of a sudden, you know, a lot of my job is taking what we know about research and translating it. It's like oh we have to pivot into another direction, and I have to go and like do a deep dive into the literature related to that use case, and then figure out ways to translate based on that particular direction that we're moving in. So, I think it keeps you on your toes, and that is exciting. But then there's just more uncertainty, I think, in in terms of how you're going to go forward.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely helpful to get both perspectives here and see both yeah. sides of the coin. <laughs> Good. So, I always like to close the podcast with some rapid fire questions so if you could just give me your immediate thoughts to that let's start with your favorite book podcast blog can be anything that you believe had a big personal impact on you on your life or your thinking is there anything that comes to mind
1: yeah well, probably one of my favorite books is this book called a prayer from owen meany by john irving i don't know if you've ever heard of it it's a really well-written creative book And it's just a coming of age story, but I haven't read a book I think that I've thought was so insightful and inspiring. And it's always stated that it's like about religious belief in the absence of God. But I don't think it's like that, not being a particularly religious person, I don't think it's necessarily that. It's just about how this main character, Owen, has really quirky, interesting traits that are very strange, I would say. And throughout the story, it just turns out they all kind of help him achieve exactly what he wanted to do. And this there's just this idea of even the strangest, most haphazard things have some kind of inevitability in how this character's life turned out. And I just think it's in something that we don't focus on enough that you know there is a good use to every aspect of our personality and every life experience and i just think this book like really brings it home that there's this kind of inevitability to where you're going in life and that just people come and help you along the way and i just you know when i took this jump into a startup i felt the same i thought you know this is really risky but i felt like so many people were there to support me and and help me and it just kind of was like this what i had in the back of my head just kind of worked out and i Feel like this is so well written in this book, so
0: mm-hmm.
1: I would recommend mm-hmm. everyone to read it.
0: What are your role models?
1: I guess in science, my big role model is Jocelyn Bell Burnell. I think because, uh, especially as like a, a woman in science, you just come up with a lot of struggles. And so she is a famous physicist who discovered the first the first radio pulsar star, and uh, wasn't given the Nobel Prize for this discovery even though she very much deserved it and in the face of that she has just like become this role model for women in science everywhere and she donated all her earnings for the other prize money that she received only to fund and support women and minorities in science and I just feel like someone like that you know who just has so much character to not be bitter by such an experience and to just instead turn that around and serve as a role model I think is just really inspiring.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And is there any advice you would give your younger self, maybe before you even started your studies or after you finished your PhD, any advice you could think of?
1: Yeah, I guess it's so cliche. I don't know. I'm sorry I don't have anything like exciting for you, but I would just say to stop worrying so much because it really is like 90% of the things you're like freaking out about worrying about are just not going to happen. And it's really just, you know, I wish I would have just believed that everyone tells you that, but it's like, I really wish I could have actually come back in time and just said, you know, stop spending energy on things like that. And just realize, you know, things are going to work out quite well. And all these little issues are not worth bothering about. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people say that and no one listens. So
0: (laughs) It's still helpful to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) Like my final question is, what does courage mean to you?
1: Authenticity. I think a lot of people say that, but I think that's still one of the hardest things is to actually live by who you want to be and to take actions every day because they're what you want to be doing and not because of external societal expectations and pressure. I think that's, if we're able to do that that's the most courageous thing we can do is just to live for ourselves and and then realize you know the people that actually will support you are the friends you want anyway but it's it's just really difficult to to not follow other people's expectations
0: yep fully agree with that one okay well thank you so much Anjali for (laughs) coming on the podcast and telling us more today about Colabri and the research behind it. And yeah, wishing you all the best with your startup and with the clinical studies and that hopefully you can launch the app soon. Where can people find out more about Colabri and you? Are there any links you can point them to?
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It was really fun. If people want, they can check out our website. It's www.colabri.com. I think it's going to be spelled out on your podcast.
0: Right? Yeah, yeah. It will be in the show notes as well. So people can click okay, on the great. link there.
1: So colabri.com or uh, they can find us on LinkedIn or if they'd like to test out the app, they could also shoot us an email or have any questions at hello at colabri.com.
0: Perfect. I'll also include all of that in the show notes. Awesome. So, thank you. Yeah. Thank you again, Anjali and all the best.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much. It was really great to talk to you, Remo.
0: Hey, before you go, I just want to ask you for a very small favor. If you get any value out of this podcast, please quickly head over to the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you are listening to this and give the Leap Takers Podcast a positive rating. It just takes 10 seconds. This would really help me to get more visible and I'll be able to continuously bring on great guests to this show. If you want to do even more, you can now easily donate something to support with the costs of this podcast. Just go to leaptakers.com and you see a coffee mark at the bottom of the page. If you click on it, you can donate a small amount, as much as you want, like buying me a coffee, which helps me to cover the costs of this podcast like hosting, editing tools, etc. Thank you so much. As always, if you have any feedback or want to get in touch, just shoot me a message. You can find all my contact info as well as all social channels on leaptakers.com. Thanks again for listening and until next time, bye-bye.